Hello and welcome to The Runs, the comic, no, it's not a comic book, the podcast in which we talk about runs of comic books. I'm off to a really good start here already. Uh, this week, we have an incredible guest. We have Mark Russell. Can you believe it? I cannot. And we're going to be talking about the World's End series of issues of The Sandman. Uh, Mark Russell is, you know, I looked up some bio info for him and he's basically written every comic book ever is the uh intro he's very extremely prolific he's written so many uh serendipitously to this run i think you kind of broke in writing prez for dc we'll be talking more about prez today um you did an incredible reinterpretation of the flintstones and then later snagglepuss have other series second coming fantastic four life story you just announced you're doing a superman comic with mike allred that's right yeah, so you're a high-quality writer of many comics is is the easiest way to describe you. That's what it says on the business card. <laughs> well, welcome to the show. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Nice to have you. Um, so, yeah, I'm definitely interested in getting your hot take on the uh, representation of Prez here, among other things. Yeah, well, the, and perhaps I'm preempting myself a little bit, but this was like one of the things they gave me when I they were talking to me about writing prez they gave me a bunch of sort of starter stuff because i'd never read a prez column before I oh. when but when they asked me if i'd be interested in writing it they sent me not only the the four issues uh that ran in 1973 and 74 but they also sent me that issue of sandman uh which i'd never read before the the, the issue from this run oh that had the you know basically the entire life story and post-mortem of Prez Rickard, like in one issue. And it's kind of what, you know, it, it, it really was like easily the thing that captured me the most out of all the Prez stuff they sent me. Out of all five Prez comics. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> the, you know, the huge, I read a huge backlog of Prez stuff. That was the star. Right on. Yeah. The Neil Gaiman Prez issue. So, uh, Pulling out a little bit, we're going to talk about Sandman for a second, kind of in general, um, just context for this run. So Sandman premiered in 1989. Feel free to jump in on this if I say anything wrong. So it's one of the series that led to the Vertigo imprint, right? I don't think Vertigo was an imprint yet at the start. Yeah, I think they just created Vertigo precisely for stories like this. I think they, they created it in the wake of like uh, uh, The Watchmen. Like that, we need to like an imprint to tell stories like these, and uh, and then yeah, Sandman was like one of the first titles that came out under. Well, and Karen Karen Berger, it's Berger, right, or Berger? Yeah, Berger. 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 I like I like that name, Berger. Um, she was basically editing a bunch of. D- there were DC continuity, but they were kind of more horror themed generally, or mature themed, but they were within the dc universe at that time and then as vertigo went on it became more of like uh um uh creator owned like you could tell your self-contained magnum opus series like preacher why the last man or hunter bullets came later Uh, this is one of the series that kind of created that bridge where sandman started as a reboot of the golden age sandman character and then became instead just a new thing uh, and then it had its it had roots in DC comics. So like Destiny of the Endless is an old DC character. He's like the crypt keeper of Tales from the Crypt. He was like a host of an anthology series, right? Yeah, and I, yeah, I think that that at the time they were worried about they wanted to tell more 
edgier stories like like alan moore's uh saga of the swamp thing and but they they didn't they were worried about what it would do to continuity and what it would do you know or also about criticism they might get from people like i bought this for my kids mm. so they decided they needed to create like a separate label which would sort of insulate themselves from these criticisms because they'd be like well was it a vertigo label was it a vertigo book then you've got no reason to complain because the whole purpose of this house of this this label is to be sort of out of continuity and to uh you know tell more adult edgier stories yeah it was a mature reader's imprint but again this is sort of at the point like martian manhunter shows up in early issues of sandman or in this one we get prez as a dc character wildcat from the justice society so you're getting these uh little tidbits of it ties into dc comics in these ways and then later that goes away in terms of vertigo as a line yeah it was much more superhero adjacent like the first you know like 12 issues where mm-hmm. you see visit visits from the regular dc universe or from characters that you can imagine being in the dc universe uh and then it becomes much more its own thing as it mm-hmm. goes on and, it, and i think part of that is you know it just populates its own universe with its own characters and then you don't need to draw from the the outside canon to tell your stories because you've already created so many stories within the scope of the series. Yeah, although it has these weird tie-ins, like then Daniel becomes the the new Sandman at the end, and he's the kid of uh what was she from? Hippo Hippolyta Hall uh, is like the wife of the other Silver Age Sandman or something like that, and she's from something. Yeah, I, I don't, I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah. There's, there's a bunch of little, there's a bunch of DC deep cuts. Like Prez is a good example of throughout yeah. Sandman. There's this stuff of like, Oh, I read a bunch of obscure comics in the silver age. So, and then this run world's end is sort of the beginning of act three, the final act of the Sandman. It's sort of like, it's sort yeah. of a bunch of standalone issues, but it's, they tie together, which we'll get into. And it's, you can pretty neatly actually divide Sandman into three, 25 issue blocks because this is issues 50 through 56 i think we're doing yeah right and and yeah i don't know if that was by design or if it's just something that sort of worked out that way but you're right i think that you you could read it as because it's 75 issues you could read it as three 25 issue acts and it does sort of change tonally between those acts too mm. and i think that's one of the things that was so striking about this series uh in at world's end was that it sort of took a break from telling the, the, the central canonical plot of the Sandman story. And then started focusing again on sort of one-offs and individual stories that fit within that universe, but weren't really advancing, you know, the characters and their main, the main plot. Yeah. And so, and this one, well, one thing that's unique about this run also is I think this is the only run I'll have talked about for the first whole chunk of this podcast that has a bunch of different artists. It's all tied together by one writer, but visually it's an anthology, which is everything else has been one artist, one writer, or even one writer slash artist. So that's interesting, but that's essentially it. It's like the beginning of the end of Sandman. And it seems to not take place chronologically. We'll talk about that. The last issue, it seems to kind of be taking place later than a lot of stuff is uh happening before which is it's sort of a pre a little glimpse of what's coming um so what is your personal relationship with this run this world's end sandman comic 
Well, as I mentioned before, the the first issue I'd read of any of them was sort of out in the middle of the series when they sent me the the Prez uh, issue because I was getting ready to write Prez in 2015. Uh, And and, uh, I but then I went back and later read the entire series. And one of the most striking single issues of comics ever, I think was the no, issue number 50 mm-hmm. uh, Neil Gaiman's uh, Ramadan issue. Mm-hmm. And I really wish I had read it when it was, when it first came out, when it was first written, because it seems so timely to that time and place uh, particular, the, uh, you know the, the the Gulf War and you mm. know the bombing of of Baghdad because the entire issue is set in Baghdad at the when it was sort of the apex of global civilization mm-hmm. you know, during the the Abbasid Caliphate in like the eighth century, and uh, it, it tells the story of this. Um, uh, I think he's fictional uh, Caliph. Um, uh, I'm going to see if I screw up his name, uh, Harun al Rashid, uh, who is the Caliph. And the uh, ruler of Baghdad, which is this city of magic and horrors, and it's at the apex of its cultural relevancy, and it's just you know a city filled with treasures and bustling with life. And he realized that it, this was as good as that civilization was ever going to get, mm-hmm. and so he makes he summons uh, uh, Morpheus by uh, he takes the um this globe which is contains the nine thousand demons that were incarcerated by solomon uh king solomon and he threatens to drop the globe and shatter on the ground releasing all these demons if um morpheus quote-unquote dream does not appear to like his summons and he drops it morpheus appears it catches the globe before it can fall freeing all these demons which is an interesting bit of sort of biblical mythology that actually is something that happens in the um, uh, in in the Jewish midrash? Hmm. All and it doesn't. It, it's referred to, although the story itself doesn't appear in the uh, the Christian Bible. That that Solomon captured all these demons while he was you know building the temple of Jeru- in Jerusalem. Hmm. Although in the uh, the the Jewish version, he captures them within this magical ring that 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 God grants them. Uh, and then when God takes the ring back, because Solomon's been sort of uh, profligate and and has been running around with pagan women, then all the demons are released back into the world. But anyway, I digress. The uh, he makes this deal with Morpheus, where the city of Baghdad will exist in perpetuity in a dream world, where we will we will always remember that city and that civilization at its peak moment in this sort of dream world in exchange for, you know, turning it over to its magnificence over to him and Morpheus agrees. And then as soon as he does, the, the Caliph wakes up and it turns out he fell asleep in the, the, the marketplace and his bodyguards are like, Oh, you fell asleep. What, you know, what, what's, you know, and he's like, I had this craziest dream that I was talking to this dream guy. And I, I, I can't quite remember what happened. I, I forget. And they lead him back to the palace and then it cuts ahead, you know, 1,200 years, and the caliph, or at least somebody who looks exactly like the caliph, is now an old man sitting in the rubble of Baghdad telling this story to a boy on crutches. And you see what's become of what was this once glorious city 
largely as a result of our making mm-hmm. as Americans of our, of our design. And, um, and it's just sort of heartbreaking. And at the same time, it really, I think resonated with me when I, when I read it, because when I read it, it was very much how I was feeling about our own civilization is like, we probably peaked about 30 or 40 years ago and mm. it's all going to be downhill from here. And it does sort of, and I think that's what lies behind a lot of the uh, both right and left angst in America, like mm. make America great is we seem to realize that this, uh, that, that we belong, that the, our country belongs in this sort of dream state now. And mm. it, it exists in the sort of mythical past that's we're still part of, uh, but it will, but the carnage is coming. The wow. <laughs> when we wake up, when we wake up from this dream, we'll look around and realize that it's all been destroyed. And so that issue, when I read it, just really hit me. Like this is like a perfect metaphor for the zeitgeist right now about our own civilization. And yeah, well, I don't I don't think that was Gaiman's intention. I think he was writing for a very specific time and place and what was happening to Baghdad during the Persian Gulf War. But you know, that's one of the great things I think about stories is that they have applicability beyond their, the author's intent. And I think that's largely what the rest of the run is about, is about how our civilization and who we are in relation to each other is largely governed by stories and mm. imagination. And that really, this is kind of what life is like. You share a few grubby rooms in an inn uh, because it's warm and dry in there. And, but really what makes it sort of this palace of wonders is uh, everyone else's imagination around hmm. uh, the fact that you can sort of absorb their experiences and stories. And that's really the only thing that, that brings magic and wonder to the world. Cause otherwise we're just sitting inside like a little in uh, to get out of the rain. Hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, our surroundings are pretty meager. Yeah. I was really interested because <clears throat> I've had some back and forth, with guests, you know, it's kind of fun to get on these email threads of what about this? What about this? Or sometimes people go, ah, you know, I'll just suggest something. Go, ah, that's fine. Um, but for you, you immediately were like, oh, I would do these world's end issues of Sandman. And I was, so one is that as a caveat to this, like issue 50 isn't technically part of that storyline, but, uh, right. we'll, but it fits. I'm including it. I'm including it in the, with, with that storyline though, just because I feel like one, it's one of the greatest comics ever written. And two, uh, to me, it feels like it starts the theme of the of the line because it's it's a story about people telling someone telling a story. Well, and it fit no, it fits in um really precisely. Like there's kind of a almost a template for the world's end stories as I read them. And I realized, yeah, issue 50, you don't have the framing device that the other ones have, but it's essentially one of those. And it's interesting how Sandman's collected too, because there's a bunch of one-off issues throughout the series. And so some of the trade collections, which were kind of a novel thing when they, you know, Sandman's one of the series that established graphic novels as a format, I would say. Um, And it doesn't just do issues one through 75 in order. There's sort of a few collections that are, you know, a handful of one-offs together. And so this is taking that one-off format and, it made a storyline out of them, but yeah, before it officially starts, there's one issue that's usually collected somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, issue 50. But so I'll just be, cause you said these were some of the greatest comics ever written was your, was your pitch to me. And then what I will say for my own personal content, I was kind of fascinated by you saying that. Cause obviously I respect you as a writer on multiple levels. 
And then I've read through Sandman as a full run, I think twice. I read it as a teenager. It sort of, for me, hit that perfect moment where you're becoming an adolescent and sort of losing interest in mainstream comics. And then there was this really nice segue bunch of comics at that time. The Max was a big one for me. And then that got me into Sandman and Piranha Press stuff and Mike Allred's Mad Men, but sort of grabbing you in the same kind of aesthetic way, but like leading you into more mature stories that were still genre narratives. So, uh, so I read Sandman over the series of a bunch of years growing up. Uh, And then again, you know, maybe five years ago, I was like, I'm going to read this whole thing again. But each time when I got to the world's end issues, I was like, I cannot get through these comics. (laughs) So to me, it's always been the point in the series where it, it, you kind of start skimming stuff and like the last few issues of Sandman, the wake, that whole storyline, I've never gotten through that either. Um, But my purpose is not to be a, an internet troll about it and try to tell you that you're wrong for liking these. I'm more approaching this. I'm, well, one is I read them. I sat down and read them and I still have some, you know, things I thought weren't, I understand why I couldn't get through them, but I, I get the structure and kind of what's special about them now, but more than anything, I'm just interested in your appreciation of them. I'm not going to challenge that. I'm going to explore that with you. Yeah, no, it's all subjective. And I, you know, I, I don't think that my taste should arbit- be the arbiter of what anyone else thinks is great but i the, these really did strike me i think with a like like a thunderclap when i read them and i think largely i've already sort of sort of preempted myself by explaining why it's like there's stories about stories not just stories about stories there's stories about the importance of storytelling mm-hmm. and of imagination and uh in the, in the and i love the fact that they're all different stories in the series like they're different genres like the first one i think is like a kafka-esque uh modern story about a guy who finds himself trapped in the dream state of a city Mm -hmm. he's not in his own dream he's in the dream of uh, a collective entity which i think is again sort of like continuing this 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 use of them as a metaphor for civilization in a lot of ways that's what we are we are the products of the roles and the, the, and the, uh, the union archetypes needed by a city in order to survive. And, uh, and, and so I think it sets up this theme of like how we are really kind of all dependent upon the collective imagination of each other for, for meaning. And it kind of sets up that theme. And then it goes into, um, a store, uh, like a fantasy story. It's told by this, uh, elf or this fairy character who, uh, kind of introduces us to the unreliable narrator Mm -hmm. because he admits later that he he threw in a sword fight and he threw, you know, might've embellished some other parts to make the story move better as a story, but it exists in this fairy realm. And you begin to sort of understand that the the, in at world's end, your first thought is obviously, Oh, well, they're all dead. This is purgatory because that's your first thought. Whenever you see something like this, like it's just sort of the cliche. It's like, Oh, what if they're all dead? But it's not that they, it's it's not that they're all in this sort of like purgatory awaiting uh, waiting the afterlife. It's more that they that this world's end in is this nexus point between all the different realms of imagination created. It's a place where they can all sort of meet for a moment while they're waiting this quote unquote reality storm before going back into their separate genres and separate worlds. 
And uh, to me, that was like very much like about the, the, the point of storytelling specifically in comics is giving people a chance to sort of evaluate what they have to say to the universe in tandem with people who are writing very different genres and about how important these genres are to like being a prism or a window into something much deeper than genre, which is the, you know, I think you're all, you're the autobiography of your soul, which is basically what we are Mm -hmm. writing when we write. Dang. Yeah. They also have these cool um, kind of recurring templates, like even the Ramadan issue where, there's always uh, a narrator. There's always someone telling you the story within the story. And then it always flashes back to something. And then there's that there's always like a, a travel, like an elaborate travel, like between spaces or, and then there's right. always uh, another, at least one other story within the story. And I think as it goes, I think the, what the second, the last one, you get more and more of those where there's multiple stories inside of the story, the necropolis one, but you always get like a second storyteller inside of that, that takes you to a separate narrative. It's just some cool meta stuff inside of here for sure. Well, and the necropolis issue is a very good example of that because yeah, you have the guy from the necropolis, the the sort of necropolitan sort of bureaucracy that's at the end of the world's end. And, uh, and there, and he's telling his story. But within that story, he's telling the story of another guy who's hired to be the uh, the hangman for a town. Mm-hmm. And the 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 caveat was like either they would they would take a condemned man and they would they would give him a stay of execution if he agreed to be the town's hangman and hang the other condemned men uh, with the uh, with the caveat that they will they will eventually hang him too, mm-hmm. uh, either because of he's not doing his job correctly or you know for what or he gets sick and they think he's going to die but the town's rule is they've got to hang him before he dies and uh in the the story within a story is kind of like to me it represents how um stories are these little rooms within our house that we didn't know existed so we might be trapped in this claustrophobic inn where it's just one big room and we're all sort of crowded around a table together but within the stories we can we find additional rooms in this house and each one you know expands into other rooms and it turns out that we live in this this mansion but the mansion is you know the human capacity for storytelling and i think that's one of the the themes that's set up by the ramadan issue because as you say there's the scene where they're just sort of you know traveling just sort of walking and he's going through all the chambers of his palace the the um caliph he's going through the uh you know the 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 treasuries and through the dungeons past the oliettes where prisoners have been like languishing for decades to into like a room that has a door made of pure fire and there he finds the egg of the phoenix and the uh and then the uh the globe that can that that contains the souls of the 9,000 demons, which he's going to drop. So I think in a way, the Ramadan issue in this palace with all of these little antechambers and rooms is a metaphor for what's going to happen next in the, the world's end, which is itself a metaphor for the human capacity for creating its own palace with imagination, because these stories lead into other stories and what you thought was happening right in front of you actually expands out into this immense narrative that you could not possibly contain within one life. 
Yeah, and the inn itself is is sort of like memory. It's shifting like its layout as throughout the story, and then it gets really big towards the end. And then, you know, spoiler alert or whatever, but how I interpreted the ending, right, is this this world's end circumstance is all the ripple effect of Morpheus dying, right? Because we see this procession right. through the, the sky, the, and which is right, the funeral procession. Yeah. And, so. and I think, it, yeah, and, and of course, the uh, the sort of monologue that accompanies it is about someone seeing this girl at the end of the procession and wishing that they could be they could go with her. And of course, the girl turns and looks at them and it's death. Right. Uh, Morpheus, sister. And I think that's kind of what, you know, the, the, the symbolism is, is that um, is that the, the, the fact that the we have this grand funeral procession of events and characters that flow through our lives in the form of like stories and, and, and getting to know people and their experiences. The fact that we've been like present to this grand narrative of the human conversation means uh, makes it sort of like not makes our lives, not nasty, short and brutish as Thomas Hobbes would have it, but just the tail end of this grand funeral procession that we were lucky to have witnessed. Mm. I like it. Yeah, we're, we're kind of jumping around a bunch, though. But um, so I guess we'll go through it. But so we have kind of the scope of it, and we've uh, given away the ending on, on several parts. But kind of go through. Well, so one thing I want to say is because we'll start with the P. Craig Russell issue, which you have already summarized pretty well. I would say visually, that's one of like the best looking comics ever. It's like very perfectly drawn. Um, all of the issues have a a specific artist doing the 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 inside of the narrative. There's a framing device that's all drawn by Brian Talbot. And then each issue has a second illustrator that does the the story inside of that. And they, they're also always in their own place. Like uh, if it's a different reality or cities or, and they're very well visually defined by the illustrator. Um, but I got to say like the P Craig Russell issue is kind of perfectly drawn. It looks amazing. And then I, I got to say the Brian Talbot art and a lot of these fill in artists, I think one of the big off-putting elements to me is just the, the art of these issues. Like Sandman, I'd say visually is one of the most uneven series. The early Vertigo series, I think a lot of times haven't aged well by a lot of the artists they were using, like Grant Morrison's Animal Man or The Invisibles. There's this kind of early uh, Vertigo art style that I don't think it was great at the time even, but I think it has not aged well. And uh, some of the great Sandman are like Kelly Jones on Sandman, P. Craig Russell. There's a lot of really wonderful artwork, but there's a lot of stuff that's hard to look at, too. Yeah, although I, you know, maybe I'm reading more into this than was intended, but one of, you know, the the the, the framing scenes that, that were all taking place inside the in itself, I thought were intentionally supposed to look muddier and, and less grand and sort of um, just more uncomfortable because that was the point was that, you know, you need the stories to make to make your life magical. Just sort of very human, like bland. But yeah, and I don't know. I mean, I think people love Brian Talbot, but I just I'm I'm not a fan. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I I agree with you that the 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 art in the framing scenes was a lot more pedestrian and not nearly as interesting as the art that actually goes into the stories that are being told in it. But to me, in a way, it kind of like reinforced the grandeur of the stories. I think hmm. I don't know if it was intentional or not, but I I thought 
you know, it's sort of like every story, once they go into the story, it's like that moment in Wizard of Oz where Dorothy steps out onto uh, uh, out, out into like the, the munchkin land and everything turns color. It had that effect for me, like whenever we actually left into one of the genre tales that was being presented. So we don't really have anything more to say about issue 50, right? Like we, we, no, I think I think. So then 51. Yeah. So we have this framing device, which is like a man and a woman are car sharing essentially, and they're driving somewhere. And then he probably falls asleep at the wheel and, and runs into a tree and the woman is hurt and he carries her into this world's end, this inn in the middle of nowhere. And there's a centaur in there and all sorts of different people. And everyone's like, Hey, yeah, let's tell a story. So the first storyteller is uh, just some guy, right? He's yeah. Like, it's just some guy. It looks like, you know, it's probably late 20th, early 21st century. Well, I guess it would be late 20th century since it was written in the late 20th century, but just some guy in a modern city. <laughs> and uh, uh, Alex Stevens is the artist on the, the city story itself. Right. And it's, it's really striking. Uh, again, the juxtaposition between that and the, the, the framing art is really sort of jarring. But but yeah, it just tells a story, and, and I, I to me it felt very sort of Kafka esque about this guy, just sort of like with this foreboding sense that he is trapped in the city, and that that he and then he realizes at some point that the, that the city is a living entity and it's dreaming him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I th- I thought they couldn't get Peter Cooper is what this art looked like to me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that's kind of the overall concept, right? Is it's he's yeah. inside of the city's dream. And that's one thing they do. Uh, I think that this character, they mentioned Fiddler's Green a couple times in this storyline. And that was one of the really cool reveals. I think that's in the Doll's House, like the second big storyline. Yeah. But three sort of entities have escaped the dreaming and one of them's a location. And it turns out that one of the characters inside of the story is the personification of that place. Like he's the escaped. And was that Hobbs Galding? Cause he shows up on the boat. Was that Fiddler's green or I, is he? I don't know. You, yeah. I, 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 I don't remember. I know that in the boat issue, which we'll get to, there's a reveal that the other guy in the boat is, I think his name's Hobbs Gelding. That might be the immortal guy, though, because there's also the, there's a few recurring anyway. Uh, but the sort of consciousness of cities or cities of collective spaces. And also, I mean, I'd say if there's one repeating thematic echo throughout Sandman the whole way through is that uh, our reality is sort of the, the, shaped collectively by uh a bunch of different consciousness right like right yeah there's this collective unconsciousness in that in a way um consciousness itself is not something we really project onto the world it's something we experience uh it's like we are looking through a um uh like we're all looking it's like a peep show and we're all looking in through a different window at the same thing but we're seeing it from very different parallaxes so what we see is different but the 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 consciousness is what happens in the middle of the peep show not in our own little separate rooms i like how you made it smutty like that's a very relevant example because every you know it's like there is there even i don't even think those exist anymore (laughs) i was just at the peep show this morning yeah you know (laughs) like you could have seen in times square in 1975 (laughs) it's just like let's travel the story within a story we'll go to times square in 1975 
Um, so that's essentially the idea of this first one though, right? Is it's the city itself has a consciousness and the guy is inside of the yeah. city's dream. That's pretty much, which I think again, lends itself to that larger theme of Sandman, which is we are products of consciousness rather than the ones sort of creating rather than the ones sort of like generating the consciousness. So then the next one is the, uh, John Watkiss draws. And so this is a character that's been in Sandman a bunch, right? This, this elf guy. Yeah. He's in the, um, I would say the best Sandman storyline personally is the, uh, what's it called where he gets the key to hell. Oh, right. I don't know what it's called, but I remember that. Yeah. That to me is the highlight of that series. And I think it's what we're talking about is just sort of different viewpoints that we're approaching the series from. You know, I think to me, it's more of a genre series, but there's a storyline where he's given the key to hell by Satan and everyone wants it. And there's all these different entities and religious figures. And uh, the fairy folk send this elf guy and his sister and, uh, they both are recurring characters throughout the run. And that's who this guy is. Right. And he's right. telling a, so he's telling a story of being, and in spent. fact, he's on his way to visit his sister. He wants to visit his sister, but the, the fairy queen says, no, there's something you gotta do for me first. So then she sends him to, there's all this fantasy bureaucracy in these stories. Right. <laughs> yeah. They, you know, most of the stories have like this sort of, um, this this sort of jointing of like the sublime and the mundane where it's like yeah the the it's about you know this this sort of like run-of-the-mill diplomatic mission done by a fairy or the other one is like you know the the uh keepers of the necropolis like on a business trip yeah Totally. And so this one also, he gets sent to Aurelia, which is like a fairy kingdom. And he remembers it is this, you know, grand place and he gets there and it's ruins, which is sort of how we saw Baghdad earlier too. Yeah. So that's interesting. And so he's there to prevent an alliance, I guess. And there's a, there's a guy who's in charge and he has both titles, right? There's usually like a, what is it? A psychopomp or something? Yeah. Psychopomp, which, you know, he's basically the, uh, to use um, sort of blunt terms of people, Riley, he's, he's probably he's like the king and the pope at the same time, right? And he's uh, bloated and he's eating a lot. And uh, where do we go with this? We're hanging out there for a while. <laughs> and he gets he gets put in prison, and yeah. uh, that's when his sister has to make a deal with with Morpheus, his sister who he was trying to visit at the beginning was never able to get to. She has to make a deal with Morpheus to free him from this from this this prison morpheus does show up it is a character i think most of these stories i think in all of and i think death shows up usually too yeah yeah so then when he's freed by morpheus then he kind of creates an uprising right he goes through and through persuasion he appeals so he says you know he says because it becomes clear like this is like sort of an unreliable narrative narrator which i think is again lending itself to the theme that like <clears throat> that the world is not necessarily things that happen. It's things that we imagine. happen. Mm-hmm. But then the, uh, the evil ruler guy gets locked in this, the tomb of the previous rulers. Right. And the, the, his, the guy, he's the successor of kind of zombie murders him. Right. Yeah. Um, and then he reveals himself as an unreliable narrator. And that's that one. Right. Any yeah. other thoughts on that? 
no, I, but I think that, that it establishes, okay, we're going to, we're not only going to different people and different stories, but the different genres and that, that that's what, you know, these worlds are. That's what genre is basically is like a, a, a fairy realm that we've created to like deal with certain questions, to deal with certain stories. Like a noir exists in a very different fairy realm than like a uh, like a Lord of the Rings sort of fantasy story, but because we use them to deal with different sort of existential aspects of the human character. I like it. So then we have the Michael Zuli issue. He's the Puma Blues guy, right? Uh-huh. That was interesting to me. Um, and it's like a seafaring narrative. It's a young boy question mark. Yes. Who, and that's also where we get into pretty much spoiled the story. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, <laughs> no, I, I'm sure any, you know, these stories have been out for 30 years. It's, it's okay to spoil them. Now. Sandman dies at the end. <laughs> so, um, and then, uh, oh, and that's also where we get, it's pretty interesting because the different storytellers are sitting around and she is like, uh, oh, I was around, this is a story from 1911. And he's like, wait, but it's an early 90s and I just crashed my car. So you're finding out too that people from different time periods are converging. Um, and it's kind of a meandering narrative, I would say, this one. Yeah, this one was really striking to me, but it was not, it was less because of the, the storytelling, it was more just because the, the powerful narration. And it felt like Neil Gaiman had always, it felt to me like he'd always wanted to write like some sort of nautical fiction. Mm-hmm. And this was like his chance because it's so powerfully narrated as somebody like this guy who like sounds like he's on a boat or she's on a boat uh, in, you know, the, uh, the early 20th century. Uh, in, in, it, it felt very Melvillian to me. Uh, and it's more about creating the, that, that world through that, character's eyes than it is about the story itself which again is you know sort of a different aspect of uh storytelling uh is that really storytelling is um is about characters that 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 character is kind of kind of trump's plot and you can tell a really compelling story just by giving enough by giving enough weight to the character's perspective and it doesn't necessarily have to have like a, a bunch of things happening, but it all kind of leads up to her seeing the sea creature, which, mm-hmm. but it really is kind of not, I mean, that, that's pretty much the story in a nutshell. This, this boy pretends to be, or this girl pretends to be a, a boy so she can get on a sailing ship. And there once on the sailing ship sees this, this, this sea monster. Yeah. That's sort of the climax of it. And then they, they agree not to tell anyone about it. Right. Yeah. Which a, a deal presumably uh, she kept until this moment, right? And then she blows it at the world's end. But so, and that's the reveal is that she's actually a she, not a boy that she's supposed to. Have. So I, I, my, uh, my research team just came back with, uh, with, with the the data I requested, and yes. So the other guy on the boat is Hobbs Galding, or who is um, early in the run, he makes it deal with dream to essentially be immortal so he's he's a recurring character throughout the series and he's at you know at the point of this story he's like five or six hundred years old a lot of people seem to make that deal with dream and they don't really think it through very thoroughly i think yeah but there's a full issue it's it's an early issue uh 
about that, about how he's given, you know, and he has, they meet once a century and he sort of checks in with them. Yeah. No, that was a good issue. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes he's had a real bad century, but he chooses to keep (laughs) going. And sometimes it's going great. So he chooses to keep going. But maybe that's the silver lining of being immortal is that like, you can throw away a hundred years and be like, Oh, well, you know, I'll rebound. Yeah. I'll, I'll get it back. I always remember though, too, that he was like, he was like drowned at one point. Like he's like been murdered a few times and, yeah. and then he has to come back as his son and things like that. Yeah. yeah. Saying you want to be immortal is like a pretty optimistic take on the breadth of human experience. Hmm? Cause you have to figure there's going to be some horrible things happening to you during that time. Totally. Just, yeah. Just knowing and, what you know about the world. <laughs> well, um, and so, and then we get a really good revisitation of this story. And there's sort of like the narrative kind of gets blown apart in a couple issues. So we'll revisit that sea monster in a, in a minute here. Um, but yeah, that was a more like kind of incidental story. And the story inside the story is there's a, a stowaway from India, right? And he tells a story of uh, a guy gives a, a royal guy an apple that gives eternal life. And then he gives it to his wife and his wife gives it to her uh, guy she's or palace guard she's cheating on her husband with and then he gives it to a prostitute and the prostitute gives it back to the king and then he kills them all and leaves the city and eats the apple is a very strange story yeah i think it's a, you know i've i've heard that story before like i think that's like like a uh, a really ancient sort of like joke slash you know sort of fable about mm-hmm. how untrustworthy people are when you have power uh and i think that 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 if I remember correctly, it was like an ancient Babylonian story that sort of uh, that that this is based on. Yeah, that's a lot of what this is too, right? It's sort of like a, a mix, a mixed track of a bunch of different uh, traditional narratives, right? That's part of what Sandman yeah. does, and it mixes exactly. them together. So now we're getting to the Prez issue, which is what the people have all been waiting for. So why is in the framing device our narrator? He goes upstairs and he meets like a, a servant. Uh, just yeah. but a, a very um, is essentially a, a Chinese stereotype, uh, how he would be drawn, you know, in the early 1900s, how a Chinese person would be drawn. Yeah, I can't speak to the art. Uh, yeah, uh, but but yeah, he's, he's means it's like, I don't mean, it's not even really clear. I don't remember exactly what his role there is. He's like changing towels or something. Well, it's very intentional though, that the narrator of this Prez story is this um, kind of archetypical Chinese, like a guy who'd live in Chinatown, you know, and I, I couldn't right. figure he out tells why a story that, that that has absolutely zero to do with what you would assume his background or life would have been. This is yeah. a story about Prez Rickard, you know, the, the, the teenage president of the United States. So it makes me think that maybe that servant is not as he seems, that maybe hmm. that is an avatar of some kind. I don't know. I always think of the U.S. as a, um, you know, a nation of immigrants, that it's people from yeah. all over the world coming together. So maybe I, I don't know, though. I was kind of I was yeah. hoping you'd have an answer to that. No, I don't have any insights into that artistic choice. Um, all right. So then we get the Mike Allred story. And I, you know, I always wanted to read the Mike Allred issue of Sandman. So I finally, I finally did it. <laughs> so what that up list. I know finally I can, I can die now. Um, and even the Mike Allred art, I love Mike Allred, but it looks good, but I don't know if it's the coloring or what, or it seems almost like the scans of the inks aren't great or something in this 
there's something about the production quality of this whole run. But anyway, so do you want to just walk through this story or talk more about what it meant to you? So we're talking about the Prez story then, or are we moving on? Yeah, no, we're doing the Prez story. So he's, it's the story of Prez. So is this a summary of the previous Prez issues or how much does it's, it deviate? It deviates in the sense that you get more um, of like Boss Smiley's motivation. And it, 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 it looks at the Prez story from a, a different vantage point. It also contains his like end, which we never get from the original Prez series, uh, you know, because it ends, it just got canceled in the mid midstream. So it includes like, you know, him being assassinated because he, uh, he uh, doesn't tow the party line. And, uh, and, and then like, not only that, but then he has this whole postmortem where, where Morpheus grants him like a, a world that's worthy of his vision for America. And he points out that there's all these different Americas. They're all different, full of different possibilities. And you'll be the president of one, which I think is about like how, you know, our national mythologies, how we create this, this these national mythologies out of, you know, people like Kennedy or, you know, people of our, 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 our own history. But really, it's just a question of which world do we want to create, you know, at the present. And, and that this, these mythologies that the country is not something that was sort of permanently established as the, uh, as a, as a mythology a long time ago, it's a mythology that we're building every day. Mm. I think that's kind of the point of the, the, the story. And that's kind of the opportunity that Prez Rickard gets, even though he's dead and has been assassinated in somewhere that, that America still exists where, where boss smiley and the boss smiley deep state is still kind of in control uh but there but there are still other possibilities where you know visionaries can prevail so is that what boss smiley is like can you in the original prez series like what is boss smiley's role he's the villain he's kind of the one who um and, and one thing that is very similar to uh the original run uh, in this story is that boss smiley is actually the one who gets prez record into politics okay he he says, hey, how would you like to be a, a senator? And I don't know if you've ever read the original series, but it's very much, it feels like sort of like, um, like, like based on hippie fear. Uh-huh. Or, you know, now that they've given 18 year olds to vote, we're going to have, you know, like Jim Morrison's going to be president, you know, they're going to make like, uh, you know, Neil, they're, they're like, uh, Neil Young is going to be the secretary of the treasury. Uh, now that the hippies can vote. Uh, it, of course, none of that, ever panned out would would that it would have panned out we'd be in a much better position today that the, the, everyone's fear of what the hippies were going to do to the country if that had actually come true we'd probably be living in a much better place but they but it, at the time that was the fear is that now that you've given 18 year olds to vote it's they're just going to basically take over everything because there's so many we're there's so many more young people than there are you know the, the, the boomers it's like the, there's so many more boomers than there are any other previous generation that they're just going to control things and they're going to elect one of their own as president. And they're going to, you know, have, they're going to turn this like the whole country into basically San Francisco, 1969. <laughs> and, and that's kind of, even though like Prez is kind of, Prez Rickard is kind of the hero and he's seen as being a heroic figure in the series. There's this element of like old white guy fear of the hippies taking over that pervades this, the series. And in, in, in boss smiley is kind of the, I think the, um, the icon that epitomizes this guy who thinks uh, I'm not afraid of the hippie revolution because I'm going to control it. Mm-hmm. He's like, 
the way you might see like like a record producer in the you know late 1960s or somebody whoever's like writing the check to produce easy writer it's like yeah the kids love this and i you know and the kids and and i'm gonna get rich off of it but and i think this is a, again where it's sort of the uh, the, the middle-aged man hippie fear comes in it all goes very poorly for boss smiley because he thinks that prez rickard is going to be his to control the prez rickard has different ideas and he's like a real uh he's a real idealist he's not going to like play boss smiley's ball so once he makes some senator he then runs for president and kind of like runs things his own way you know this is like visionary sort of um young president of the united states and boss smiley is kind of powerless to stop him even though he comes up with all these different machinations to bring Pres Rickard down. And the Neil Gaiman story, this issue is very much kind of the opposite. It's like, well, but the rest of the story is that even though Pres Rickard didn't do what boss Smiley wanted him to, in the end, the deep state prevails and boss Smiley found someone else who would, you know, do what, run the country the way he wanted and, uh, and got rid of anybody who sort of didn't play ball that these, these, these victories over the establishment are temporary and easily undone. Mm. I like when uh, Richard Nixon appears to Prez too. Always points to a Richard Nixon appearance in any comic, yeah. you know, it's nice. Uh, but yeah. All right. That's a good take. Oh yeah. And then also John Belushi would be alive today if Prez had been president. I thought that was an interesting detail. He hosts SNL and then uh, John Belushi credits yes. him for gutting clean. <laughs> yeah yeah prez is like really an aquarian president <laughs> and then yeah and then so much wild, be different it's true and wildcat from jsa makes some appearances in here too which is just another dc nod and he's the watchmaker right that's his other thing yeah, he, he that was like also true to the original lore where oh. he was somebody who was like sort of a whiz kid with clocks and watches and and he figured if he could fix like the town clock, then he could fix the country too. You know, natural cause and effect conclusion. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. If you're a so, good clock maker, you could probably also run a country. I think so. Yeah, I think that's a good standard. So then we have Shay Anton Pensa. Do you know who that is? No. It's who drew the necropolis issue. I've never heard of that artist outside of this. They have kind of a scratchy style. It's kind of nice. It fit the the tone of the story pretty well. Yeah. Um, so, do you want to say more about the Necropolis issue? Uh, yeah. So, to me, the the star of the Necropolis. I mean, the, the the characters are kind of interesting because they come from the city of the dead, and of course, we get more from uh, the Necropolis guys later. But but what I really liked, and again, this is like more of like an archetypical story, which I can imagine coming from some much more ancient source but the the story of the that the hangman the town's hangman and about and I, to me I, I felt like that resonated with me just as like you know we are how we're all kind of like on on borrowed time and are the best you can sort of hope for is to uh to cheat the hangman and to die on your own terms which is kind of what i think the the end at the end the world's end kind of represents to the characters who are assembled there well, what's interesting too is so because it's is it it's multiple. This is where they're all telling stories, right? Is that right? Yeah. So there's multiple stories inside of this story, but um, so the the overall framing device is the world's end, and then the framing device of the Necropolis story is they go to have an air burial, 
where they essentially like cut the guy up and birds come and eat all yeah. the parts of him, which is like maybe a real thing. That's a very odd. Um, I would I, I would be uh, shocked if that weren't actually a cultural practice. Somewhere. Yeah. So then as they're waiting overnight for the, the birds to eat this guy, they are telling these stories. So one is the hangman story and he uses the noose to make himself stand up to appear not ill is the other like, they come to get him and they're like you're sick and it's your time yeah. but he's actually standing upright his, he's, his family props him up so that he can fool the hangman and like and the, the fool the town authorities into not thinking he's sick so they won't hang him and then he gets to die peacefully in his bed yeah and then the other one is it's destruction right from the endless is the character yeah and then uh, what happens exactly? All the endless come. I'm trying to remember. I read it like two days ago. Oh, it's the old. It's the death of the old necropolis before this one. And they they piss off the endless in some way, right? So then they all come and they the the city is kind of uh, destroyed, and then a new one forms from where that was, right? It, which is again, it's sort of like what made makes me sort of think that like even though Ramadan clearly was not part of the series, it's thematic relevance sort of emanates throughout this series, Mm -hmm. both about the power of storytelling and also about the rebirth of like civilizations uh, or cities being kind of like destroyed and recreated like people. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, yeah. And then the last one is, uh, this old woman inside of another story talks about her experience and she's in these catacombs forever. And then this voice appears to her and guides her out and it rots one of her hands. And then many years, she can never find the room again. And then at the end of her life, she finds it. She comes out and her hand is restored and then she dies. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know much to say about this story. But again, it's one of these really great sort of, uh, uh, you know, almost feels like a cone of some kind. Like this is like a, a metaphor for that, that, that people came up with to, uh, in, for some sort of ancient wisdom that has long been since been lost, but you know, I don't have too much to say about that story, but I do think that the last issue of the series really bookended the series incredibly well, because it, you know, it ends up with the woman who, um, was originally brought to the uh, to the end of the world's end, sort of like complaining that there are no women in any of the stories. Yeah, and of course the uh, the 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 girl who was the boy pretending to be the boy aboard the, uh, the sea ship says, "Well, what about mine? Mine was a story about a girl," and she shoots back with like the whole point of your story was that there wasn't a woman in it. <laughs> yeah, and and you know she kind of like. Uh, takes a like a uh, a literary critique shot at like genre in general it's like this is just a chance for you to talk about dicks and uh and to sort of like you know in male swagger uh as if this is some sort of universal experience and, and in a way she kind of reveals herself to be the main character of the entire storyline mm-hmm. even though she hasn't really had a chance to tell her story and now she's like well I'm going to be the one working at the the end now I'm going to be the one sort of like corralling the stories and, uh, and facilitating the, 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 the stories that come through here. And, and to me, like, well, the ending is that, you know, uh, is that the, uh, the guy who brought her there 
who is like a software developer and from Seattle leaves. And it turns out that he's been telling this whole story of everything that happened at the world's end to uh, a woman in another bar, like in Chicago somewhere, uh, like a barkeeper. And she's just trying to close. She doesn't want to necessarily hear the story. She's just trying to close the bar. And she's like, Oh, well, that's a weird story. And so it turns out that these were all stories within stories within stories. Yeah. And, and usually told to somebody who doesn't want to hear them. Somebody who's like, feels forced to sit there, <laughs> listen to them. but it, you know, it's about the, you know, the, about how much human experience and wisdom just gets wasted on the fact that we're all too busy to really experience it or to, uh, to give it time. And it's kind of a tragic ending to this, but it really is about how I think stories are, are the, um, are the food of life. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things to say there. I mean, I do, re- I did really like that when the woman kind of breaks down one, she describes her own life as this really ordinary life. You know, she's uh-huh. just like, I work at a company and it's not that exciting. And, you know, she has kind of a normal. Yeah. They, they ask her for her story and she's like, there is no story. It's like, yeah. I, you know, and then, uh, yeah, her critique, that was really sharp. Like her critique of the stories leading up to it. And they're all, yeah, there's no women in them. And, um, and then, uh, yeah, so she stays at the inn. There's also like a series of double page spreads, which again is yeah. the, funeral, the funeral procession in the sky. Which I think was like the, the visually the most stunning part of the entire series. It's yeah. Like really sort of the, the emotional and visual climax of the entire series where you're watching the funeral procession in the sky. Um, and, and really about like how, it gave me the sense, even though it's never said overtly, that this is really what we are doing when we share stories, is that we're we're sharing uh eulogies of of the worlds that are dying around mm. us. That we are talking about the things that we will miss when they are gone, and they're gone pretty much the moment we we recognize them. Mm. And I think this kind of what gets back to like the Ramadan story and about like how you can only really measure a tree once it's been cut down and that you're telling stories about things that have happened and that are now dead because they are, they are over. And that's okay because it's part of a procession. It's part of a funeral procession that we should just be lucky to have been part of. It's also really interesting to me that we're, um, we're, we're seeing the consequences of the storyline that comes after this. Like, I mean, I think Neil Gaiman, was always very like, oh yeah, I'm going to kill this character at the end. And it wasn't like a secret that the dream was going to die. And that was how this, there was very strangely like out in the open as the series was going on. But even still like this being uh, all tied to kind of a climactic event that's we haven't seen yet is really interesting to me. There's another, there's a few other ones like that. Like dream has a relationship with the woman at what like sort of in the middle of the series and we never actually see it we see like the prelude and then the aftermath like after it doesn't work out but we never actually see the relationship yeah it is i think it ties back to that theme of like how consciousness is just something um that we are a product of not necessarily something that we create uh that, that that time as a byproduct of consciousness is sort of like experiential that that just because we experience time in a linear fashion in a um, cause and effect manner doesn't mean that's actually how it takes place. 
that everything can sort of happen all at once. And I think that 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 sort of sensibility at times is not this linear thing, but it's this sort of it's just one more facet of the overall narrative of the dreaming is is a, again like an overarching sort of theme throughout his storytelling. You're that, really uh, blowing my mind. <laughs> so then, yeah. So then everyone's kind of going home and like the necropolis guy goes off with the, the, not everyone goes back to where they came from. The necropolis guy goes off with the centaur and, you know, there's some people jumping ship and then the woman who's hurt initially decides to stay there and then the protect so that's the other thing that's interesting too though is like so then the protagonist is telling this story to a bartender in the bar who's kind of not interested uh and also just like the scope of a human life like we can't know everyone's story like we can't really know yeah. our own story in a complete way so well and it turns out that the woman that he brought into the bar to the end of the world's end doesn't exist yeah or she at never least, existed yeah or either she did exist and and by virtue of staying behind to work at the end of the world's end they completely pulled her out of the old existence that she lived in erased all uh record of her or she never existed it was always just a figment of this guy's imagination which again to me is like about how you know we are we're really only as we are imagined by others yeah, they do that a lot in Sandman, though, like in the Death miniseries, too, where she appears as mortal for 24 hours and she's like, oh, I've got this whole existence set up. There's a lot of like uh, they're really good at building false identity. You know, they get your paperwork done. They'll give you a passport or yeah. uh, make it so you never existed really cleanly in this sort of dream shaper of worlds. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, that's the that's the run. Do you stand by? this just being one of the great runs of yeah, comics yeah i absolutely do um i reread it you know about a week ago to in preparation for this and and yeah i still it it still struck me like it, like the same way it did when i brought it up to you initially cool well i'm glad it i'm glad it holds up for you um i'm glad i finally read it you know i just never <laughs> but yeah there was just it did feel a little bit like a slog to me i guess maybe it's because it's so many asides or i mean i get the point i will say that when i read it i had i had to read it slowly i think part of it was just because it was like you know sort of blowing my mind so i had to like stop and sort of absorb what i was reading for continuing further but it i could see where people would think it was sort of a slog because i, I don't think it's the sort of thing it's not light reading and it's not like, you know, a page turner where you're just flipping through like from plot point to plot point at all. It's much more the opposite experience. Yeah. Well, it's dense and it's all asides from the core narrative and uh, it is, it's challenging and it is like, you have to look at it thematically. You have to sort of link it. To, uh, it's not like if you read a single issue of this, you wouldn't be like, Oh, that's a great standalone story. It really is yeah. part of this bigger thing. I had an experience too. I taught like a workshop at an international school. This guy was a doctor and he was like, Oh, I read some, com-, you know, people, Oh, I read some comics. You make comics. Um, and it was the issue, there's like a Marco Polo issue, and it's all about how uh, plots of land didn't exist in the shape they're in now until they were mapped, like the act of, and that issue too is very boring to me when I read it. And so there's always been to me these kind of breakout Sandman stories with these great concepts and the issues themselves feel sort of boring to me, but then um, you have to kind of mind. I don't know. It's just interesting. Like, I guess I, I feel like I shouldn't, but I always kind of enjoy Sandman more when it's like an adventurous genre 
the narrative. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, depending upon what you want, you, you obviously, you know, you know, there are people who, who will love like James Joyce. And to me, this is probably the most Joycean thing of that, that Neil Gaiman's ever done. Maybe this run. I'm not a big fan, James Joyce fan, but I can understand why somebody is because they're reading for a different thing. They're reading precisely because they want to unpack the puzzle of what he's talking about mm-hmm. or to feel like they've been, you know, dropped into like this dark corner of Dublin with, you know, not much plot involved. That's not why everybody reads. And, and, you know, part of it is, you know, you, uh, you know, it could be the best candy in the world, but if you're expecting, you know, uh, a cheeseburger, when you put it in your mouth, it's going to taste like shit. So like you're going to spit it out. Like, what did I just eat? Uh, and so I think part of that is like the reading experience is like what you're expecting going into it will very much influence uh, how you are tasting what you actually put in your mouth. Yeah. So you kind of have to know what you're getting into. I mean, I think that makes sense because I read through the series and it's all these kind of uh, more linear narratives and there's always a big idea, but there's like an adventure aspect. So it did, it felt like a splash of cold water. Like both times I did the read through. Um, I remember the first time I, you know, I would just get the trades and read the next one. And I was just like, what is this? (laughs) So yeah, but it's cool. It's cool to get some perspective and really explore it and understand what's great about it. You know, I think that's, that's rewarding. And Sandman is a really deep series. It works on a lot of levels. Um, do you yeah. have any kind of final thoughts about this before we? Yeah, go I, I, I will just say that I, I I like this part, this method of storytelling. I think better than just sort of the canonical uh, storytelling of like the, the main characters in Sandman. Even though I love the entire series, it's one of my favorite series of all time. To me, it really is at its best when it's telling stories like this, where it's hmm. telling stories that are kind of like self-contained asides, as opposed to like moving up. Uh, along the main narrative of Morpheus and death. Yeah. And I mean, it, it does, it says a lot about the overall themes of the series too, like uh, the nature of stories and how story shape worlds and our consciousness and things like that. So I see that. Yeah. I'd say I'd mix. I mean, to me, the, um, I can't remember the name of that one season of mists. Yeah. Where it gets the key to hell. I always felt like right. that was kind of officially the, the high point of that series. But again, I think we're just, your your yours is a more learned approach to the series. <laughs> Mine well, I think more... it helped that I read this like like later in life. I didn't read it like when I was you know while it was coming out initially. Yeah. So I had the benefit of like knowing more about the series going into it than than I would have if I had just read it when. Yeah, and not approaching it as genre fiction as much. You yeah. know, like I definitely initially it was like a cool bridge between. Uh, there's still conflict and sort of supernatural elements, but it's also got some really real feeling character, just that mix of those things. So it was sort of a sequel to superhero comics, you know, like you're right. more more mature, but still not a very, you know, I'm I'm never going to reach the level of maturity where I don't want to reach. Yeah, we're, we're, we're ma- retaining the imaginative world building of superhero comics, but using it to talk about something other than just, you know, like like pro, pro wrestling narratives. <laughs> yeah. by, dudes and capes totally and then i always like to ask every guest this um i probably should have given you a heads up on this but um and you might you're probably one of those answers where your your answer is something you've already done so try not to but ask everyone what would your dream run be like if you could so 
You're primarily a writer, though. You, you don't draw yeah. comics, right? No. I mean, I, I can draw, but not good enough to do, like, professional comics. But so if you could have no editorial intervention and do, you know, five years or whatever on a, on a mainstream, doesn't have to be a mainstream title, but it's, you know, better question for the audience, I think. Uh, what, what would your run be? Uh, did it have to be an existing character? Mm. Like a, someone else's IP? I think so. I mean, are you saying you have a you have an idea for a long run? You well, I think do? if if they let me just do anything, what I would do is like sort of a uh, Twilight Zone esque sci fi anthology. Ooh, sign me up! Bunch of different artists. Yeah, in nice. in, in, in in different genres within science fiction. In fact, some could, might not be science fiction at all, but I would just like to do like to me. It's like something that's really sort of sorely lacking now. It's just sort of like an anthology of really solid one-off stories. Yeah. You would write the whole thing yourself. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. For some reason, anthology, like when you switch artists a bunch, it's hard to keep it going. I guess if you could get right. You have to start from scratch every time, which is why it's so rarely done anymore because you know what they're, what they're relying upon to sell these issues is that people have some familiarity with the characters and they, you know, they, they, they have a lot invested. So they're, continuing going whereas if you're writing an anthology and each issue could be a completely different genre different look different characters there's nothing really to keep people going from one issue to the next other than their faith in your ability as a storyteller yeah which i think in your case is pretty good but i also think series like that often the artists get you get diminishing returns like you get six issues of amazing artists and then you start to get you know, Michael Zuli or whatever. <laughs> that's very, that's very possible. But yeah, yeah, if you allow me to like exist outside the realities of comics and just sort yeah. of like do something, you know, uh, that that's probably what I would do. Well, I like that idea a lot, actually. I would, I would like to uh, see that, but uh, just for the hell of it, let's say an existing, you know, like a Marvel um, or DC. Character. I would love to write like a, like a Howard the Duck series. Oh man. Oh, make it happen. That's cool. I feel like there's been some good, attempts at howard the duck in the last 20 years right but they don't yeah or or, or scrooge mcduck i, I just want to work with ducks basically okay so duck <laughs> some duck based fiction in the future keep an eye out for uh for some new new duck themed comics from mark russell um and then uh just to wrap it up do you want to say what you're working on or where can we find yeah, you all that uh, stuff? you mentioned a little earlier i'm working on a new superman series with mike allred called Superman Space Age, which yeah. looks at Superman on a decade-by-decade basis from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Nice. How much of a dream is that to work with Mike? Yeah, Allred? it's total dream project, both to, to write a Superman series and, you know, to, to work with Mike Allred. In fact, when when the series got greenlit, they're like, you know, just give us your bucket list of artists you want to work with. And, like, he was, like, number one on that list. Yeah. And I'm just amazed that we were able to get him. Yeah. Uh, so that in uh, the concluding chapter of One Star Squadron about D-list DC superheroes trying to make a living in the gig economy, uh, that comes out uh, in uh, May. Right on. I don't know when these will come out. They might come out after that. Um, I'm recording a bunch at once. We'll peek behind the curtain. Uh, but anyway, keep an eye out for it. Yeah, One Star awesome. Squadron and the Superman series. Right on. Well, I'm on the edge of my seat. Uh, oh, and where can I find you if I want to read your Twitters and all that? Uh, at Manrus, like a man who's a walrus. M-A-N-R-U-S-S. All right. that's. I never thought of what that was. I always thought like maybe... It's it a truncation a- of my name, basically. Okay. 
Is your middle name in there? Uh, Anthony. Yeah. So okay. M and Russ. I always thought there had to be a middle name because I was like, it's part of your first and last name, but what's the N? Well, glad to know. Anyway, that's it. Thanks so much for doing the show with me. It's yeah. super exciting to have you on here. My pleasure. Thanks. Cool. cool. And uh, stay out of trouble. Yeah, you too. And with that, we'll bring this episode of The Runs to a close. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about me and my work, my website is ohyesverynice.com. That's O-H-Y-E-S-V-E-R-Y-N-I-C-E.com. Also, I'm working on a comics biography of Muhammad Ali. You can learn more about this project at patreon.com slash ohyesverynice, where you can subscribe to both digital and print Editions. I can also be contacted at ohyesverynice at gmail.com. You can send me episode suggestions for the runs. And if you send me an email saying you heard about it on this podcast, I will send you a free digital copy of one of the chapters of the Ali comic. Home base for this podcast is theruns.blogspot.com, but it can also be downloaded or streamed on all platforms where podcasts are available. All the best ones. Please rate and review the show. And share this podcast on social media and, more importantly, in person. Thanks so much, and see you next time on The Runs.